while there are a lot of new projects in US and, and US will almost double its uh, export capacity based on the projects already being constructed, there is a need for a lot more gas on top of this. It will create jobs, will grow the economy, it will ensure that allies are getting sufficient energy and you will be you will need it in order to replace coal and you know US has been actually quite good at reducing their emissions and the reason they have been able to reduce their emission is coal to gas switching welcome to smarter markets a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology commodities and finance ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them together we examine the questions Are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Setting Course on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at ABEX Technologies. Our guest today is Ostein Kalaklev, CEO of Flex LNG and Advanced Gas. We'll be discussing how the LNG and shipping industry is navigating the post-European energy crisis world and the new crisis in the Red Sea. Hello, Ostein. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Thanks, Dave. Good to be back here I'm for my tour time, I believe. It is, it is. And it's always good to have you back with us, though I am beginning to feel like every time we talk, there's a new crisis in the world to which the LNG industry is needing to respond. I believe the last time we talked, you know, it was the European energy crisis following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the loss of Russian pipeline gas into Europe. This time there's the Red Sea crisis as the Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen have been attacking ships ostensibly in support of Hamas. So maybe uh, we can start off with where we are following the European energy crisis. While LNG and natural gas prices have moved back to more normal levels, it really has redrawn the map with Europe now dependent on LNG for its energy needs and the United States becoming the leading LNG exporter. So from your perspective, what does the LNG market look like post the European energy crisis? Has it been changed on a long-term basis? Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a comprehensive question and, and, and welcome to the world of shipping. There's always uh, events. I think it was a foreign minister in, in Britain who said uh, politics driven by events uh, all the time. So so in shipping, there's always something. Uh, and usually, uh, I would say almost for, more often than not, these events are good for shipping markets. So people think that when something bad happens somewhere in the world, that's, that's negative, not necessarily for shipping because typically events drive inefficiencies and inefficiencies create more demand for shipping whether that is curtailment of transportation in whether that's panama or suez similar it creates opportunities and you know even i think we saw this the best in in shipping in in 2020 during covid when the economy <laughs> went into shatters and oil prices at one time went negative tanker rates were soaring because suddenly your inventories of oil filled up and you need to put the oil somewhere so you put it on tankers so so that's the good thing with with shipping i think that uh, it's uh, it's driven a lot by geopolitical events the lng market has also been driven by geopolitical events to a great degree uh, the last couple of years we had of course covid uh, which uh, i think i talked about the first time i was there when prices of lng went as low as $1 per million BTU 
and U.S. prices down to about 1.7, uh, I believe, on Henry Hub in the middle of 2020 when when oil price went negative. And then last time I was there, where we talked about the Russian curtailment where European gas prices went to 100. So you had a 100 times increase in the price of LNG in a rather short period of time from summer of uh, 2020 to uh, autumn of 2022. And then these kind of high prices, of course, are affecting consumer behavior. You know, when you're paying $100 per million BTU of LNG, it's about $600 per barrel of oil. Imagine if price of oil was $600 per barrel, you would have a huge economic crisis uh, throughout the world. So uh, this time, of course, the, the economic crisis has been uh, more related to European uh, markets. Uh, European markets really f- felt the pinch. Asian buyers haven't had the same issues because the Asian buyers are traditionally buying LNG on oil price linked contracts where the, the price is linked to, to oil with a discount and prices in, in those markets have then not been affected uh, to that extent because most big buyers have sufficient coverage on these oil price index contracts. And, and of course, China also had a curtailment given the, the zero COVID policies they implemented for some time in 22. So. So uh, right now, uh, things have been uh, settling down. Uh, demand for natural gas in Europe has fallen a lot, both in 22 and 23. And that together with uh, nuclear starts up in, in, in uh, Japan, somewhat lower economic growth in China following a scrapping of the zero COVID policies have resulted in the supply situation getting a bit more under control. And we are down now to more natural prices of, of LNG where prices are eight to ten dollars where actually you do have spot LNG at a, a pretty big discount to oil also more in line with contract price of LNG which is the the main price for Asian importers and then we have had some events here lately with the cold snap in the US really driving up uh, domestic prices but the cold snap was uh, not long lasting and we are down to four year low on uh, Henry Hub prices in US now. So so the, the market are more benign, but uh, and we do see that these lower prices are starting to stimulate demand again. Natural gas demand in Europe has been picking up and some of the more uh, emerging Asian markets, Thailand, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, they are returning to the market because now finally they can afford LNG, which has been a luxury item <laughs> the last two years or so. And I wanted to ask you about some of these uh, events and the inefficiencies that they're creating. So following the European energy crisis, we had much more US LNG going to Europe, You know, Europe going from being the sink for the LNG market to kind of the demand pull. So a change in dynamic there. But now, just as the US becomes a leading exporter, you've had these problems in the Panama Canal, which has typically been the route used to export LNG from the US Gulf Coast to Asia. It's becoming less reliable with drought conditions affecting water levels in the canal, creating delays and restrictions. I was curious for your perspective on how big a deal has this been and how is the industry responding to the issues around the Panama Canal? Hmm. Yeah, just firstly, you know, Europe has, as you said, uh, traditionally been the, the sink of the LNG market where you are a buyer of last resort. And this was a fantastic position for Europe to be in during COVID 2020. It could buy uh, a lot of cheap LNG uh, because of the, the rather big storage capacity in, in Europe. 
and then uh, it turned from uh, buyer of last resort to buyer of first and last resort uh, during <laughs> during uh, kind of the situation after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and curtailment of, of flows. Uh, when talking about flows through Panama, uh, it's a bit different situation. Panama Canal you know, was expanded with new locks from 2016. So uh, you have three types of locks. And of course, uh, the expansion resulted in you could have bigger ships. You could have ships from 32.5 meters in beam up to about 50 meters. So these are the big container ships. And the canal was, of course, in, intended to be expanded for increased container traffic after China became member of VTO, I believe it was 11 December 2001, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So that kind of China getting into VTO resulted in a boom of more container traffic. And with the new locks, you could build bigger ships with a much bigger parcel uh, or size in terms of, of number of containers they could have. So, you know, this been, uh, traffic has been increasing. And, and at that time when they decided to expand the canal. You know, U.S. was a, a importer of, uh, of gas. And suddenly, America became the biggest uh, LNG exporter in the world and by far the biggest LPG exporter in the world. And they never kind of thought about this when they expanded the canal. So it's become very tight. And, and then on top of that, we have had a El Nino situation where actually the canal, they had very high water levels heading into uh, the El Nino season. And then the drought has resulted in the, the, the water levels going down to historical lows, which means that uh, they had to curtail a number of passings through uh, the canal every day. Usually, the nameplate capacity is 36 ships a day for the various uh, three types of locks or sizes of ships. And But you know, on good days, they have been able to churn 40 ships through the canal, and then they announce reduction down to uh, 18, but Situation has become a bit better, so we are today on a number of transit at around 24. So, so capacity has been taken down, and this created a big problem in the autumn, when kind of auction prices, in order to skip the queue, went as far as almost four million dollars. And then you need to pay the regular fees on top of it, so it can easily put you back four and a half million dollars to go through Panama Canal one way. And this kind of forced a lot of ships out of the canal and where they had typically, if you are exporting out of U.S., you would go U.S. via Suez to Asia in order to save a bit time in terms of going through Cape of Good Hope. And then the situation with the Houthis in Yemen escalated with them attacking ships. So Suez is dead in terms of transit for LNG. There are still some LPG trade in the canal because of the Yanbu terminal in Saudi Arabia on the Red Sea uh, side. So uh, so that is kind of forcing ships for longer routes. However, Panama situation has improved. So you can now use also the Panama Canal, which was basically very limited uh, capacity there before, uh, before New Year. So uh, let's see. The water levels in Panama are still very low. The rainy season will not start before May-June. So we will have a situation with very low water levels and where water levels are decreasing and then we will have to wait and see whether the the next rain season will be better and you are able to get up the water levels or whether you could have a second El Nino and then we really are into trouble when it comes to Panama. All right. And I wanted to ask you some more about the situation with Suez. You said no LNG going through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea at this point. 
some LPG. So how is the tanker traffic being rerouted or you know, how is the LNG industry dealing with that? Yeah, LNG, it's, it's not that important. Of course, the, those who have benefited the most, I would say, is uh, container traffic because a lot of container traffic is going from uh, Asia to Europe. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, it's a big shortcut going via Suez to Europe rather than going all the way through Cape of Good Hope. So in terms of LNG, it's a different market. All the LNG being produced in, in Asia is staying in Asia. So the swing factor is Atlantic cargoes, whether they are going to Asia, which was the situation prior to uh, Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine, or whether they are staying in in, uh, Europe. So while Europe was importing uh, less than 20% of US cargoes summer uh, 2021, suddenly now they are taking uh, close to 70% of US cargo. So, So the pull of US cargoes to Asia, it has some effect, but the effect is not that big if you're going from from US via Cape of Good Hope or Suez, it doesn't have a big impact. It's a couple of days longer voyages. Panama is a bit more important because you can shave off quite a lot of days if you're going from US Gulf Coast via Panama to, let's say, Japan, North China, uh, South Korea. So Suez is not that important for LNG. It's a bit similar applies to to, uh, VLGC. US is, of course, the biggest LNG exporter, but they are much bigger relative size on the LPG side. It's almost half the export market, while US is about 20% of the market on LNG. So there, it's all, it's more Panama, it's more important than Suez. And I wanted to ask you about the, the LPG market, because you're also, you know, in addition to being CEO of Flex LNG, you're CEO of Avance Gas, uh, where you move a lot of LPG. For people who aren't familiar with that market, where are the big producers and consumers that you're moving LPG between? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's been a market that's been growing enormously, uh, driven by the shale revolution in US, where suddenly US have become you know a, a marginal player to basically half of the export market today is US. A lot of the shale wells in US are gaseous and becoming more gaseous, meaning that the gas to oil ratio in those wells are going up. And today, U.S. is uh, producing about 13 million barrels of oil per day. But uh, what people might underestimate is for every barrel of oil being produced, they are producing half a barrel of natural gas liquids. And uh, natural gas liquids is, you know, ethane and LPG. So LPG being propane, butane, uh, isobutane. So these products, so the LPGs, which we are focused on, are to a very great degree being exported, a much greater degree than LNG. So LNG exports US, let's say uh, around 15% of natural gas production in US is being exported as LNG. On LPG, is a much bigger export share. And the buyers, uh, Europe is not similar in size as, as in LNG. Asia is really the big buyer, and especially China. China is growing rapidly on uh, imports, and, and this is all about, you could basically call it refining LPG. It's a bit similar if you have oil, you're refining it to various products. On the LPG, you are doing the same. You're cracking the, the hydrocarbon and you're making polypropylene, where you can make that to, to various plastics. And China is ramping up a lot of production of uh, PDH plants. 
where they are utilizing uh, imports of rather cheap U.S. LPG to produce plastics. So that's uh, that's a growing market and where U.S. is very dominant. Uh, the other big players, of course, Middle East. So let's say U.S. is half the market. Middle East is like 35% and then you have various other markets. So it's a, it's an interesting market. Right. And is that, are the, in addition to the, the big pull for China for LPG, propane, butane, ethane for plastics, is there also a resp- like a, a pull from emerging market countries for use for fuel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the good thing with LPG. It's super versatile. You can utilize it for a lot of different things, whether it's for refineries, whether it's for fertilizer, whether it's for heating and cooking. And of course, clean cooking is a, a big challenge. You know, uh, in Africa, it's about 600 million people without access to electricity and you have similar issues in, in India where people are burning biomass, dung, <laughs> wood. And of course, when they're utilizing this for cooking, it's, it has a lot of emissions. And it's a huge health problem with you know, a harvest study. I think it's uh, around 8 million people are dying uh, prematurely every year because of air, poor air quality. And a lot of this is in India and China still. So, of course, uh, LNG, it's, uh, it's very nice in terms of exporting that to more developed countries where they have gas grids, pipelines, and you can move big volumes of, of gas for countries which are less developed, like India and uh, Africa. You don't have that kind of infrastructure. And then it's much easier. You can just put the LPG on a canister, and a lot of people who are barbecuing know this very well. You put it on a canister and you can roll it out and distribute it. It's uh, It keeps well. You don't need to have like uh, this minus 260 Fahrenheit you need for LNG or minus 162 degrees centigrade. So so it's it's, uh, it's a bit more like the, the, the poor man's LNG. It's more uh, easy to, to distribute and, and it has a lot of different uh, uses, and even, even auto gas to name one. It's always about logistics, right? Yeah. <laughs> Commodities. <laughs> yeah. How hard is it to move and where's the infrastructure? And I want to ask you, because it's kind of an interesting development, right, with the U.S. becoming such a big exporter, both of LPG and LNG, Europe, you know, strong demand there. I guess what I'm trying to get to is how balanced are is the Atlantic Basin market on its own? How balanced is the Asian market on its own with the US? You could say, well, you've got the US supplying Europe in the Asian market. You have the Middle East and Australia supplying China and Japan and the other countries. How much do we need to be moving LNG and LPGs between the Atlantic and Pacific? Like, How vulnerable are we and how reliant on that swing that you know either goes through Suez or Panama? Or around mm. the Cape. Yeah, no, of, of course, uh, like uh, Winston Churchill said, you know, energy security is about diversification of, of sources. And I think Germany have learned that the hard way with uh, having 50% reliability on, on Russia. And they were planning to increase it to close to 70%. So I think the good thing with LNG is it's you put it on a ship and you can move it wherever in the world. A pipeline only goes to one place. So, so LNG in, in that sense can give a country a lot more energy independence. I think the best uh, example is Lithuania, which uh, invested in one 
FSIU called the independence for for natural reasons and suddenly the country which was totally reliant on Russia for pipeline gas had another source of import capacity and could source LNG and were able to renegotiate the contracts for Russian gas prices at much better levels. So in terms of energy security, Europe has of course replaced a lot of the Russian pipeline gas with LNG, but still, you know, consumption of natural gas has fallen a lot in Europe because of, you know, it takes a lot of time to bring new LNG supply to the market. So the, the you have had a growth in basically the opposite of what the EU politicians want, coal. So coal has been growing steadily in Europe despite the fact that you have a pretty well-functioning market for CO2, where you have also a high price of CO2, we're still, you know, coal is growing. So we've been able to to kind of replace some of the Russian flows with LNG, but not all of it, not even close. But at one time here, we, Europe will also have to replace all the coal. And you're not able to kind of replace all this baseload power with renewables, wind, solar, you need to have something with more stability. Nuclear is not very popular in, in, in Europe. So the natural choice then is, is LNG because there's not any kind of <laughs> appetite either for shale, shale gas in, in Europe either. And, and of course, it's much more densely populated than US. So it's a bit more challenging to, to do uh, shale gas in, in Europe, even though you have some natural resources of it. So that means that the gap has to be filled with something. Of course, renewable will grow, but you need more LNG. So I was asking my assistant today to make a calculation. If you want to replace all coal in Europe, which I think should be the ambition by 2030, how much LNG do you need? And he was studying for maybe an hour or so before uh, I didn't get any good answers. So I asked my friend, ChatGPT 4.0. It took him uh, less than a minute to give me the answer. Answer is about 200 million tons of LNG is required to replace coal in Europe. Europe have uh, increased their import of LNG following the curtailment of Russian gas from about 80-85 million tons to 125 million tons. And still with that 125 million tons, you are at a much lower level of natural gas consumption than you were prior to this. And then if you want to replace coal, so let's say you are replacing half the coal with the renewables, that still leaves 100 million tons. And Europe is a rather small consumer of, of coal. Imagine how much LNG you need in order to re- replace coal in China, India. Uh, <laughs> so I think, uh, think uh, you know, it's unfortunate that Biden have started with uh, election politics already in uh, in. Uh, January, February, with this moratorium of uh, new projects, because those projects are needed. So while there are a lot of new projects in US, and, and US will almost double its uh, export capacity based on the projects already being constructed, there is a need for a lot more gas on top of this. It will create jobs, grow the economy. It will ensure that allies are getting sufficient energy. And you will be, you will need it in order to replace coal. And you know, US has been actually quite good at reducing their emissions. And the reason they have been able to reduce their emission is coal to gas switching. Yep. And in the long term, we're going to need much more gas, much more LNG, more capacity, more liquefaction facilities, more regas facilities, more ships. I'm curious in the near term, with kind of the 
longer, different routes being required, requiring, I would imagine, more shipping capacity and more the right type of capacity in the right places. I wanted to ask you, do we have the right LNG shipping capacity to match the new routes and the right liquefaction and regasification capacity? Or are there like important bottlenecks you're seeing in the system right now? Hmm. Yeah, I think we had a pretty big technological development on the LNG ships the last 15 years or so. We've gone from smaller ships with steam turbine. They're actually not smaller in terms of size. They're pretty similar size. But this, if you have a steam turbine ship, you need to have two huge boilers on the ship. And, and that is taking away uh, cargo capacity. And then we've gone from steam to diesel electric engines and now the uh, a more modern uh, dual fuel diesel engine, which is much more efficient. You have a thermal efficiency of 50 to 52%, while a steam turbine, yeah, 30, 35%. And if you have like a, a, the most efficient gas combined cycle uh, gas plant uh, onshore today, they are typically in the low 60s. So you're getting up to a high level of efficiency. But, you know, there will be s- small improvements there, whether that's energy-saving devices, air lubrication where you can make bubbles under the hull to reduce the drag. So there, there will be incremental improvements. I think one thing that is important is to have a ship that can trade via Panama. So that puts a, a natural kind of limitation on the, the beam of the ship of at, at around 50 meters. Most uh, big LNG ships today are between 44 to 46 meters in beam. So it doesn't leave a lot of room for further expansion of the of the ship. Relic is getting more important. So you have a relic system because LNG ship is a, is a thermos. You put, put the LNG on, on the ship, it's minus yeah, 260 Fahrenheit, 162 Celsius. So that means it's very hard to keep something at this temperature. So you will have a heating of the cargo while it's on board. And that heating creates pressures because you have LNG going from a liquid state to a, a gas state, and that's creating pressure in the tank. And the way you deal with this is to take out the gas vapor and stabilize the pressure at one atmospheric. But you're not venting the gas. You are utilizing that gas vapor to run the ship. So you have basically your own fuel as part of the cargo being LNG. So I think, you know, the ships are getting uh, uh, today uh, are much more efficient than the one we had 15 years. I think there are limitations on size, but there's for sure a lot of them being built. The order book is around 300 and there are slightly more than 600 on the water. So we have a fairly big uh, order book to, to cope with all the new LNG coming to the market. And we really don't expect a lot of technological revolution in terms of efficiency because the ships are today very efficient. I think the one thing we are looking for is the carbon emissions. You need to do something with the carbon emissions down the road. There's been rather good progress on methane emissions and methane emissions are extremely important given the potency of, of methane. We have, I can give you an example. We have nine megaships in our fleet. Methane emission for them uh, are guaranteed to be below 0.2 grams per kilowatt hour. The generation prior, the diesel, uh, dual fuel diesel electric, they typically have a methane emission of 4 grams per kilowatt hour. So it's a 95% reduction in uh, methane emission uh, on, on those new engines. And remember the methane pledge 
on COP uh, was a, a reduction of uh, methane emission by 30% by 2030, which is for sure certainly achievable. About half the methane emissions today is profitable to remove because if you are emitting methane, you could rather make uh, burn it. And then almost all the remaining methane emissions is technically feasible to, to deal with. And in that sense, it's good that uh, the Biden administration is uh, suggesting a, a price of methane emissions. Because if you want to reduce global warming, the easiest, cheapest way to do it is to reduce methane emissions. Uh, and actually, those countries which are putting stringent rules on methane emissions, they are able to meet it. If you look at the ESG report of Equinor, the, basically the national oil company here in, uh, in Norway, they have virtually no methane emission because there are such stringent rules on it. And then if you also top that up with a price where uh, the, the Biden administration has uh, suggested a price up to $1,500 per ton, which I do actually think makes sense. If price of CO2 is 50 to $100, then I think price of methane should probably at least be 1500 because it's 84-ish times more potent on a 20-year cycle and 28 times more potent on a 100-year cycle. So I think at least the price of methane emissions should be 10 to 20 times bigger or higher than CO2. So that was a roundabout way <laughs> of answering your question. <laughs> no, that's it's it's fascinating. And I, I when I kind of listen to the balance of the conversation so far, it sounds like the industry's been navigating these crises pretty well. You know, maybe that's the nature of shipping, as you said. There's always events occurring. There's always things to adjust to, and many of them are often good in terms of you know requiring more ships, requiring more capacity to deal with the events and the disruptions they cause. I was curious, like when you look at the market, has there been much of an impact on shipping rates or the volatility of the rates? Hmm. A guy who is often guest in your program has a very good answer to this. The, the, the medicine for high prices is high prices, and that's Jeff Curry. So, so the high prices and the market have solved the problem. Uh, it's a bit sometimes frustrating to see that EU is like, crazy on trying to implement a lot of new rules and trying to regulate themselves out of the problems rather than letting market forces fix the problem. So uh, in terms of, of the market, of course, we have had some interference by EU and I think it's mostly been for the bad rather than the good. <laughs> Of course, we have seen market move. Of course, the high prices of products, when LNG prices shot up, it made cargos super valuable. <laughs> so when you have such a valuable cargo, what you are paying for freight doesn't really matter that much. So whether you're paying hundred or $200,000 per day for freight, if you can make $100 million on cargo in profit. So that kind of, when this happened, in the invasion happened in, in 2022, there was a rush to secure shipping tonnage because you didn't want to lose out on access to tonnage and then lose out on cargo economics. So it drove rates to uh, new highs, even though you could say 2022 didn't look that good in terms of shipping balance, in terms of numbers of ships delivered and volumes coming to the market. But as I said, these crises tend to create inefficiencies in the shipping market, and that was happened. So even though you had super high rates, you saw ships idling because the traders were not willing to 
subletter ships, they had to control tonnage in order to make all these bucks on uh, cargo economics. So that was something we saw in 22 when rates went as high as half a million dollars per day for freight. Last year, it was more muted. Still a pretty good market in the winter. You've seen rates at $200,000 per day, which prior to this, you would think that is crazy high rates. So, so yeah, so we have had a rush to secure tonnage, which have driven up rates. It's also made, in especially in 22, the term market quite active because if people are paying $300,000 per day on freight, they might, might ask, okay, instead of me doing this spot voyage, what if I take the ship on 12 months time charter or three years or five years? So it's, it's also driven period in the market where people have been willing to pay quite decent num- sums of money in order to secure a ship for one, two, three, five years or so. With cargo economics coming down to more normal level, it's also re- resulted in a, a, a reduction in, in freight rates. And typically, when cargo economics are getting better, you do see increased efficiency of the fleet because people are not holding uh, and kind of uh, securing tonnage to such a great uh, degree. So, so we've seen rates slump, but which is also natural. We we are getting out of the heating season now. The winter is almost over. If you're fixing a ship today, let's say you're shipping uh, fixing a ship, you're probably doing a, a loading in US end of March. So. <laughs> So then, and then you're selling it into, let's say, China in uh, in uh, end of April. So then you're already into the, the spring and shoulder months. So, so that is driving down rates, but we have seen crazy high rates driven by these uh, crazy cargo prices. And, and this a similar similar applied to LPG market. We we went from the highest rates on record in let's say November, maybe around hundred and seventy thousand dollars. And then when this cold snap in US happened, we we went down 90% to maybe around 15,000. And now we are back to maybe around $30,000. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, how people are going about managing that type of risk where you can have crazy high prices in LNG and LPG and freight rates. Is this changing mm. like on a longer term basis, the nature of the business, the nature of how people structure their contracts or how they think about having pretty significant risk in these markets? Yeah, it differs a bit. You know, if you're a trader, you don't mind if you're paying $200,000 in freight per day as long as you're making arbitrage on the, the product. So so they are more of the view that they want to have spot exposure to freight because if you have, let's say you are long gone cargos and but and you you don't know what price you're going to sell it at, you, you typically want to have spot on the freights because... You ha- otherwise, you, you 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 might end up going wrong because you are basically trading the margin. You're not trading the price. You're trading the margin, and and freight is kind of aligning the the margin. But yeah, uh, it depends a bit on who is doing the trade. If you have long-term offtake agreement and you fixed sold your LNG on a 20-year oil price-linked contract, you cannot have this kind of volatility. You, you need to know whether you're paying $70,000, $100,000 or $200,000 per day on freight. So those people who have more kind of back-to-back contracts, they like to fix freight for a longer duration. Those who are trading and trading spot, they rather prefer maybe to have freight also spot. So it the, depends a bit. LNG is, uh, I would say, much more into uh, long-term contracts with Typically, three, five, ten years contracts with 
fixed higher rate. So in Flex, we today 12 out of our 13 ships are on what I would call long-term contracts. We only have one ship coming open uh, Q2 this year. The rest of the ships are booked, so we are 94% booked for the year. So there you have more predictability and the charters are, are paying more, for the most part are fixed higher. On LPG is totally different. LPG is more like commodity shipping, like tankers and dry bulk, where uh, traders are a much bigger part of the, 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 the value chain and where people are buying the product on spot, not on long-term contracts. So they also want to have shipping spots. Yeah, and that's I, I always appreciate talking with you because you know you're right in the middle of these markets. And I was curious, it sounds like there's a difference. I like asking you what, what a typical day's like for you when I hear about all these different, you know, events happening around the world. But it sounds like a typical day at Flex LNG could be very different than a typical day at Advanced Gas, mm. given the nature of focusing, I guess, on the longer term at Flex LNG with the longer term contracts and maybe having to deal with more near term scheduling issues at events but yeah. so i'm just curious you know what what's a typical day like for uh, you now it's it's very different but th- there are some similarities because both markets are heavily affected by u.s shale production and development in prices in u.s and and u.s become the biggest exporter in both segments but the industry are totally different so in in flex it's more a long-term business where we do tend to have more active engagement with our charters on a bilateral and direct way where we are traveling around meeting them asking them how they are experienced the service they get from us and what the requirements they have and and, and if we have open ships we, we tend to to market those directly to our customers on our lpg side is totally different so while we are 94 percent covered on on flex in terms of days booked for this year we we're probably 94 percent open in uh, advanced gas we, we have very limited out of the, the 16 ships we have, we only have one ship on time charter. The rest is open spot. And the cargos there are mostly going through the broker system. So if, if somebody have a spot cargo, they flash it out to some brokers and brokers are calling around and, and trying to secure the freight. So you have a much more active engagement through via the brokers, less direct than in LNG. And you are basically every, every week you are fixing a new ship. So, so there you are kind of talking to the guy on chartering and the brokers. And at, at any given time, we typically have a ship we are marketing for a spot voyage. So so it's it's a bit different market. Uh, I like the dynamic. One, one, one business which is a bit boring, stable, predictable, and the other one which is totally uh, volatile. But, you know, if you look, we did this study uh, a year ago because a lot of people was worried about the VLGC market last year. VLGC is a very large gas carrier transporting LPG. So last year we had a very high fleet growth. We scheduled 45 ships for delivery. Uh, This year it's about 20. And people were worried that way too many ships being delivered. You had uh, close to 15% fleet growth in a very short period of time. However... What's happened is that U.S. NGL production has been very, very high. So U.S. was growing their exports by about 12% last year. Then you have had the Panama congestion. So instead of having a too many ships, actually, there's been too few ships. And rates been the best since the shale gener- revolution started in U.S. in 1415. <laughs> so uh, that's the dynamic of that market. And, and then if you look at the VLGC rates the last 10 years... 
yes, they are super volatile. And we have just been through a, a period where rates have fallen down 90% and now they've doubled, even though it's, it's still a fairly low level. But if you look at historically, it's not only about volatility, but it's also about levels. So what you have to look about is a volatility, but how often are you at rates which are below your cash break even? So uh, while rates are more volatile than dry bulk and tankers, they are much less often below cash break even. So it's like eight out of 10 months you are above cash break even, which is a lot better than what has been the case for, for dry bulk and, uh, and, and tankers in the past. So, so you, you shouldn't only look at volatility, you should also look at levels. Got it. And I really appreciate you taking time out of what sounds like very busy days to, to share your perspectives and insights with us. I wanted to ask you to kind of close us out with your view of how the role of LNG and LPGs in the world is changing and how the industry must evolve following what we've been seeing over the past couple of years. Talking with you, though, it sounds like from a, a technology standpoint and fleet building, that's going very well. I'm wondering, is, is the is the bigger issue more on the policy side. You uh, commented on the US moratorium on LNG, some of the shipping issues in EU policy. So maybe like I really want to ask you how do you see that evolving, but is is policy the big issue that's on your mind now more than some of the others? Yeah, I think the big issue we have, uh, you know, Remember, people switched from coal to natural gas not because of CO2 emissions. Nobody was worried about CO2 emissions at that time. People switched because of air pollution. That was the reason why US and then eventually Europe switched out coal to natural gas in order to clean up their uh, areas and, and air quality. Today, we have the big problem being methane emissions, as I mentioned, and CO2 emissions. Those are the big challenges that uh, will be need to, to to tackle. We do see a lot of the U.S. export projects now in order to be able to kind of sell the gas to, to end consumers, especially in Europe. They need to have a plan for carbon capture or electrical drive on the instead of gas turbines on the export plants. So that's that's key. And then, of course, when you're burning the the gas, you need to have a, a some plan for carbon emission capture whether it's utilization storage and and you know uh, there, there is a lot of money flowing into this right now there's a project in in us where the yeah, called net power uh, was just bought up uh, from a, one of the few spacs surviving uh, the rice acquisition uh, spec where they have a new way of burning natural gas rather than burning it in in air they're burning it in pure oxygen and where they at least the idea is, is it's easier to capture the CO2. So those things are, will be critical. So if you are able to find a cheap way to capture the CO2, then the regulation problems will not be a big issue anymore. The regulation is, of course, in order to push forward more sustainable solutions. So uh, it would be much better if the industry can solve this instead of politicians. So that is where, where I do see the key. On the methane side, it's mostly upstream. Are people venting? Are people, uh, you know, which is a total waste of, of resources. And then, of course, in terms of ships, are the ships burning the LNG efficiently, or are the residue in the the gas, which is then venting and creating these uh, methane emissions? So, so I think that's the key challenge for the industry. If we're able to solve 
the methane, which should be very practical and economically feasible to solve, and then able to solve the CO2 issue, then I wouldn't worry too much about the regulations. Regulation is actually more a problem than for uh, renewables because a gas power plant uh, doesn't take a lot of size. You don't need a lot of permits to, to build it, but building big uh, wind farms or solar farms takes a lot of more space. But, you know, it's it's not a simple task, but it's one that needs to be solved. And I think uh, businesses is in a much better position to solve it than politicians. <laughs> Thanks again to Ostein Kalaklev, CEO of Flex LNG and Avance Gas. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back next week with our next episode of Setting Course. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.